And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It is Tuesday. It is, according to my watch, the 19th of September which means it's too damn early to start putting Halloween costumes and decorations out in your yard. So, <laughs> and if you live in my neighborhood, stop it, quit it. October the 1st, that is as soon as you can put Halloween decorations out in the yard, okay? Not the 19th of September, way too early. I don't know what's going on. Driving out this morning, there's like, you know, spider webs everywhere and lights. Everybody's just all excited about Halloween. Well, shoot, Christmas is already up in the stores. I know, it is. But, you know, Halloween is the second most profitable shopping day of the year next to Christmas. Wow. So, yeah, go out and buy some stuff. Mm -hmm. Who needs it? Chocolate. You can buy stuff. Just don't put it in your yard yet. (laughs) Just October the 1st. Jeez. Got to at least wait for the daytime to cool off a little bit. Is your wife chomping at the bit? Well, she's chomping all right. So last (laughs) night I woke up, it was like two o'clock in the morning and she's sitting up eating a bowl of cereal, watching TikToks on her phone. (laughs) And I'm like, and I realized, I said, my my wife suffers from a terrible disease called insomnomnomnomnia. So, (laughs) you know, it is just, so I didn't get, I couldn't go back to sleep after that. So anyway, I'm, I'm running, I'm a little bit punchy this morning, so. Anyway, uh, today starts the two-day Fed meeting, of course. Uh, will they, won't they? That's the big question. Uh, of course, on Wednesday, we'll actually get the announcement. Expectations, of course, are absolutely the fact that they're going to not raise hikes, uh, not hike rates, sorry, and keep them there, kind of the higher for longer type mentality. That's the, that's the broad expectation Um, right now for the Federal Reserve. So again, probably nothing coming out of the Fed this week outside of the the normal, kind of what we've seen. Much, most likely just a kind of a regurgitation of kind of what we've heard the last couple of meetings, which is, you know, uh, keeping a watch on data coming in and, you know, kind of just monitoring the inflation front. So again, don't really expect anything. Again, the Fed looks at, you know, if, you know I, yes, I know oil prices are up here over the last, you know, couple of weeks. Um, but again, they don't look at that because they look at the core. So they strip out energy and food prices to look at core readings, which have been kind of in line with expectations. So again, not a lot of, uh, of, of surprise out. Yesterday, the market kind of rallied early on in the morning, started off a little bit weak, rallied into midday, then sold off at the end of the day. And again, we've kind of, uh, you know, kind of been talking about this is that markets are not really kind of wanting to do anything ahead of the Fed just in case there is some surprise uh, event. And, and that's kind of really the story here. This morning, futures are pointing up again. This morning, Dow's uh, looking to open up about 30 points. So uh, again, just kind of going to be another kind of sleepy day in the markets as you know we kind of wait ahead of this uh, kind of FOMC meeting. Uh, we're done with earnings for the most part. Uh, we have a few little earnings dribbling in here and there, but you know by and large, all of the earnings for uh, second quarter now have been reported, and, and so we we don't really have a lot to drive the markets. Not a lot, not a lot of important economic data. 
etc. So again, kind of a sleepy day um, here probably uh, for most of the trading day. Probably won't see a whole lot until tomorrow afternoon when you actually have the FOMC announcement and then potentially fireworks. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, speaking of oil though, um, one thing this has kind of been on everybody's radar as of late because oil prices have been creeping up, but oil prices are back to very, very overbought levels. And, uh, you know, not just on an RSI basis, which on a relative strength basis, oil is probably the most overbought that it's been since, you know, at any of its previous peaks. So again, very nice rally in oil uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, but again, very extended here, very deviated above long-term moving averages as well. So expect a fairly large correction here in oil prices, probably back down towards the mid 80s to low 80s would not be surprising at all. Um, and that could uh, potentially happen anytime. You know, what causes that? Uh, oil prices have also been rallying X other commodities. So again, this has been a very specific kind of commodity rally and generally uh, more sustainable rallies in oil will correspond with rallies in other commodities as well. That's not really been the case. So again, uh, pretty much a good technical rally uh, at this point driven by most of the NYMEX traders. But again, very, very extended, very overbought here. Uh, so look for a pullback, uh, which also pulls some of the worry off the inflation uh, front as well when it happens. But again, just uh, we, we are very rarely this overbought going back in history. And, and, and again, if we just take a, a look at a little bit longer time frame, um, you know, when you have these kind of, of more um, kind of egregious overbought conditions like you have now, it's typically corresponded with a correction of some sort. So uh, again, just uh, markets can only move so far in one direction before ultimately you are going to get a reversion of that price movement. So again, with us now back to previous resistance levels that we were back at uh, September of last year, uh, don't be surprised if we get a bit of a correction back again. Uh, and, and again, you know, somewhere you know mid, you know, um, you know, 80, high 70s would not be surprising at all. Just kind of a normal correction within the overall market. So again, just kind of watch that. That's been one kind of the big uh, drivers that uh, have been getting a lot of attention as of late here. So don't forget to take profits in your energy stocks. They've had very nice runs. So pull back a little bit there. Um, also, small and mid caps continue to really kind of be the laggards of, of the markets. And if you take a look at the differential between the S&P 500 and what's happening in small and mid cap stocks, that's also uh, been, been concerning. Here's what you need to know before the bell. The, the market over the next couple of days um, is starting to, to kind of price in a little bit of what they, they expect to happen. So if we take a look at the S&P 500, we've been kind of just really holding flat here for the last couple of days in particular, but really kind of supporting along this consolidation line that the market's kind of been holding onto. Had that correction back in August, had this rally here just recently kind of stalled here, consolidating a bit. Um, we're, we're very, very kind of getting back to oversold conditions, close to triggering a short-term sell signal. Um, but again, that can reverse if the market does rally. So again, as we look forward to the FOMC meeting tomorrow, if the meeting comes off in a more dovish manner, we could expect to see this market rally here a bit. So again, as we kind of move through <coughs> September and into October, and part of what we'll talk about on today's show is again, we're getting set up for that kind of seasonally strong period of the year. We're not there yet, but again, as you kind of tend to look at the markets and where we're setting up, confidence has come uh, has, has settled down a bit. Uh, sentiment has come back a bit here. 
Um, uh, allocations have, have also been uh, reduced here a bit, and that's kind of that setup that you need for a bit of that kind of year-end performance drive as we start looking into the end of the year, portfolio managers needing to rebalance portfolios, et cetera. So again, nothing really concerning here. We continue to try to consolidate uh, this uh, very tight, this, this channel that continues to tighten a bit here. Um, we're getting a very kind of very compressed level of prices. So we're going to get a move one way or the other. It could break out to the downside, a break to the downside. We're going to be retesting the 100-day moving average, break out to the upside, we retest previous highs. So again, there's certainly room for this market to break to the downside. If we take a look at volatility, it has been very suppressed here for quite a while. And in fact, we haven't had a day where the S&P has been down one and a, more than one and a half percent in more than 100 days. And that's a very long period. But again, volatility remains very suppressed here. So there is certainly a risk of a downside break. So don't you know, completely dismiss that. But even if that occurs here in the short term, I expect it to be short-lived as we start to get set up for that kind of year-end rally. We'll talk about that some more this morning, but that's what you need to know before the bell. Coming back from the break, we will get into what kind of this year-end rally might be and what, what are going to be the drivers. We'll talk about that next when we come back from the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. So again, this um, today's article on the website talking a little bit about uh, some more weakness potentially. And as I said, you know, just for the break, we've gone more than 100 days now without a market decline of more than one and a half percent. We got close to it earlier in the week. We got about 1.2 percent. But again, we haven't had a day where the market was down more than one and a half percent. Close that way, too. So, you know. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to happen, but again, it's a fairly long stretch of time where you haven't had a pickup in volatility. Again, volatility remains very suppressed, and you know this potential for a downside break certainly is is out there. But with that, and that could certainly happen again, a, a little bit of a shocker announcement from the Fed tomorrow, uh, some other type of event pops up, could certainly cause that short-term pickup in volatility, but Markets are getting back to pretty oversold. So even if it occurs, it will likely be fairly short-lived. And that will, again, kind of contribute to the setup kind of for this expected year-end rally. Now, does, does a year-end rally have to occur? Absolutely not. Statistically speaking, it tends to happen more often than not. And that's why we want to give it some weight because – there are more times than not that the market rallies October, November, December than it doesn't. Now, we can certainly bet on the one-offs that it may not, and it, and it might not. This, this might be one of those years. They're rare, but this might be one of those years where the market doesn't do great into year end for a variety of reasons. High interest rates, tight monetary policy, the Fed you know, is more aggressive than expected. I mean, there's some things that could certainly happen. And so we certainly don't want to dismiss that probability. But if we take a look at kind of the years 
in the past, going back 20 years, and we just kind of average the performance. Equity Clock does a really good job of this. Um, you can kind of see the average year in the market. And, you know, if you take a look at where we are right now, this kind of uh, September-ish, October-ish period, um, you can see the markets are kind of flat. They're volatile. They potentially kind of move around here a bit. And then you have this October, November, December run. So, so why is it that you have this year-end kind of run? And there's, there's some reasons for that. But if we go back in, in history, and, and I did some analysis back to 1957, and if you had only invested in two periods of the year, so you either bought October through May or you sold May or, or you bought May through September, and the difference is quite substantial, right? So if you had, had bought only the seasonally strong period of the year, your performance was dramatically larger than what you had by investing in the seasonally weak period of the year. That, now, does that mean that summers are always negative? No, of course not. We, you know, um, summers are sometimes positive. But if there's going to be weakness in the markets, it really tends to show up in the summer months, particularly August, September, October is for some reason why all the major crashes occur. <laughs> so, you know, those, those certainly have impacts to markets but so again there's a lot of statistical support for this seasonally strong period of the year and why we don't want to completely dismiss it entirely now now this year so far has been if we take a look at that equity clock again and and look at you know how the market rallies at the beginning of the year then kind of goes flat line in the summer and then you have this strong year in rally it's exactly kind of what the S&P looks like this year you had kind of a very strong beginning of the year. And really, since about July, the market's gone nowhere. So it's it just really July, August, and, and so far in September, and potentially in October, um, not making a lot of gains here, but but not really going down anywhere, just kind of consolidating all that advance that we had had from earlier this year. And of course, that's really been driven you know, by those top 10 stocks, you know, we've talked about before, and the, and the deviation in performance between the S&P you know, kind of market capitalization weighted index and the equal weighted index is quite large. Um, so, uh, you know, again, this has been really kind of a one-sided market this year for the most part. But again, that's just kind of the way this market has worked out. Last year was that way too. Energy was the the, the, the leaders. Um, but, you know, as we kind of start thinking about the drivers as we head into the end of the year, there's quite a few things that could help support it. First of all, we're about to go back into earnings season, and yep, it's that time again already. We just finished it, and we're about to kick it off again in October. Um, and if we take a look at earnings estimates going back to last year when analysts first started announcing the quarter three estimates, right? So in, in last February, they, they laid out their estimates for quarter three of this year, and their initial estimate came in at $229 a share, and that had actually risen up to 236 in May of last year. Now it's down to um, $187. So again, this is why companies are always able to beat the estimates because we continually just ratchet these estimates down, 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 and then then companies come in and they go, "Hey, there, here's our numbers." Like, "Oh, you beat you beat the number." Well, if if you had kept the original, if we held analysts to their original estimates, we'd have a hundred percent miss. Right, nobody would beat their earnings. 
but this is the game that we play. So these very suppressed earnings estimates are certainly a support for the markets because now we have a lot of companies. Well, we'll get that 70, you know, 70% of companies have beat earnings this year. Well, it's because we lowered the bar uh, and they beat earnings, but that helps give support to the markets, particularly as we go into the end of the year. Um, also, professional managers here recently this summer have gotten a bit more bearish. Um, back in July, they were very bullish. We, they were over 100% allocated to stocks. We were at 101% allocation to stocks using some leverage. Now we're down to 57%. So professional managers have reduced their equity risk exposure this year. So now as we move into the end of the year, if the market starts kind of moving higher, they're going to have to put that exposure back on. That's going to provide some buying power, some lift to the markets, particularly as they head into the end of the year. Um, the drag in performance this year, as we showed earlier, that difference between market cap and equal weight, if you have a normal portfolio that's kind of diversified among you know different stocks, you, you, you have the, 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 the bottom performance. If you own seven stocks, you have the top performance, and and that's the, and and for most managers, they own uh, they own stocks that look more like the broad market. So, you know their their performance is lagging this year because they don't have that weight in those mega cap stocks. So there'll be some potential performance chase to get those stocks into their portfolio this year, as well as to get their performance up. So again, being underweight stocks going into the end of the year, if the market starts rallying, they're going to have to get that exposure on. And that's going to help provide some lift to markets. And then, of course, we can't forget that starting um, as soon as we get through October, the bulk of earnings will be in for the S&P 500 companies and the windows for blackout uh, for stock buybacks open back up. Their companies can't buy stock during the earnings announcements. Once that's over, their window opens back up and we're going to have roughly five billion dollars a day in stock buybacks coming into the end of the year. So again, another support. So you've got underweight performance. Uh, you got what? First of all, you've got underperformance by managers. Have to play catch up. They're underweight equities going into the seasonally strong period. And you have these $5 billion a day in stock buybacks. So there's certainly plenty of catalysts. There's, there's, there's kind of some pent-up buying as we head into the end of the year. And just statistically looking back in history, Another support is, is when you have a big beginning of the year where the markets are up more than 10%, the end of the year, the, the fourth quarter tends to be up by about 4% or so as well. So again, just kind of across the, the, the breadth of statistics and analysis, et cetera, there's certainly a case to be made why the end of the year could be a bit stronger for equities despite short-term weakness so again yes i realize we're having some short-term weakness there's certainly some concerns about things that's actually a positive for the markets again remember markets are a contrarian instrument so when everybody's kind of negative about something short term that usually is a setup for something else to occur you know when everybody expects one thing to happen something else tends to occur and so, again, a lot of this negativity that we see at the moment, this kind of bearish attitude that we're seeing is a good setup to help fuel that rally into the end of the year as those bears have to be pulled back into the bullish camp. And that's just kind of normally how this works. So, again, you know, the whole point of this is not saying that we're absolutely positively, you know, going to, to get through the end of the year and it's going to be wonderful and nothing but, you know, roses. And, and as I talked about at, at the opening segment today, the volatility index remains extremely suppressed. And that is certainly a concern in the short term, at least this market could have, you know, a decent little sell off here 
Um, and there's no guarantee, as I said. You know, this could be one of those more rare years where October, November, and December doesn't perform well. You know, back in 2018, didn't perform well in November and December. Had a 20% decline uh, back then because the Fed was at that point kind of freaking out over, you know, no being, you know, trying to hike rates and we were nowhere close to the neutral rate and the markets were down 20% and, and 2019 were cutting rates back to zero again. So, you know, it could certainly happen, right? The Fed, the Fed could come out, say something tomorrow that could certainly shock the markets, pop that volatility index, get a sell off in the markets. It could certainly happen. It's more of a rare event than not. So again, we kind of have to to place our bets. I'm not saying just go, you know, kind of, you know, balls to the wall in terms of just, you know, putting everything out there in, in equities on a guarantee that the market's going to rally into the year end because it's not. There's no guarantee there. But again, we're just looking at statistics and odds and probabilities. So, you know, continue to manage risk in your portfolio. But be careful being overly bearish here because this market may very well surprise you uh, heading into the end of the year. All right. Wraps that up. That article on the website this morning, by the way, uh, just simply go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back after the break. And uh, we'll see if the Fed's getting what the getting in the economy they expected. Talk about that next right here on The Real Investment Show. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com Back to the show this morning, of course, you know, the all eyes are on the Fed meeting tomorrow. And uh, of course, uh, Michael Leibowitz and I will dig into this on you know, much deeper on Thursday once we actually have all the, you know, have the announcement. And then, of course, the presser that Jerome Powell will give will kind of dig into all of the nuances of whatever was said and, of course, how the market responded. But Federal Reserve policymakers uh, for inflation. You know they're they're thinking that inflation is potentially where it is, and you know they're still concerned about inflation. And I thought this was kind of an interesting article from the Wall Street Journal this morning. Uh, Federal Reserve policymakers' projection for inflation this year look as if they could be too high, while their GDP GDP project projections look too low. And I, I thought that was interesting because, of course, the Fed's long-term outlook for GDP growth is around 1.8%. And, you know, this quarter, last quarter, GDP has been coming in a little bit stronger than expected because of the Inflation Reduction Act, the spending that came from that, uh, the wrapping up of a lot of the uh, benefits, you know, extended benefits payments that were being put out. Those ended in December. Of course, there's been a moratorium on um, student loan payments, which are just now starting. So that's helped kind of fuel some of the spending earlier this year. So, you know, as the 
Federal Reserve kind of sits down, you know, when we take a look back at the history of their projections, it's actually been quite the opposite. Their projections for economic growth have always been too high. And, you know, because every quarter the Fed comes out with their projections of employment, inflation, and economic growth. And, and their economic growth estimates are always wrong. They're, they start out too high, and through the end of the year, they have to continue ratcheting them down until you kind of get to where economic growth is, kind of like earnings estimates for, for companies with, with Wall Street analysts. They're always wrong, too. Um, but the question right now is, is that, you know, the, the economy's been a bit stronger than everyone kind of expected coming into this year. Now, remember last year, everybody was expecting a recession. And now that everybody, now, and now that economic growth has been a little bit stronger lately, everybody's like, oh, well, there's no recession now. We, we've bypassed it. Um, and this is, this is that proverbial soft landing that everybody's been hoping for. And as we talked about yesterday, that, that's been, you know, very much a hard thing to stick for the Federal Reserve. Timing is always the issue. But, but again, the last time that the Fed released projections at their June meeting, they showed that policymakers on balance thought that their preferred measure of consumer prices, inflation, was about 3.2%. Um, and that was a little bit higher than where we were uh, during that quarter. They forecast the core prices, which exclude food and energy um, and better capture inflation, would be at 3.9%. So those were both a little bit too high. Um, the good news, you know, kind of in a way, is for the Fed is that since inflation has come in really lower than their projections, that gives them room not to hike rates at this meeting. And, and, so, and, and that, again, that's pretty much what the market is expecting. And, you know, the one thing that the Fed is kind of abhorrent to do is to shock the markets unless they need a shock. Now, you know, in the past, they've done this. Uh, they've gone into a meeting. Everybody was expecting a 25 basis point hike. They come out, boom, they hit it with 50 because they need to have a shock to the markets to get, you know, you know, excess sentiment out of the markets. Or we've seen intra-meeting rate hikes where they were concerned about inflation getting out of hand and they would hike in between meetings and completely shock the market. So it's not outside the realm's possibility uh, for the Fed to shock the markets at tomorrow's meeting. It's just they most likely won't, and they generally don't. They they generally kind of listen to the markets, and, and this is why they trot out these speakers on a regular basis saying, you know, they have Bullard and all these other guys going, well, I think that, you know, we need to hike rates a whole lot more, and then they monitor how the markets react. Well, and then they then some guy comes out right behind them and says, oh, we don't need to hike rates at all. And they see how the market reacts. And so they get a gauge of what they can kind of get away with in terms of their policy. And they go, well, you know, so the market seems to be kind of set up here for a 25 basis point hike. So that's where we're going to go. And then they do that. And there's no big deal for the markets and everything's fine. So, you know, the, the Fed's um, projection for gross domestic product in June would that it would grow just 1% in inflation-adjusted terms in the fourth quarter from a year earlier. Um, economists polled by uh, S&P Global Market Intelligence last week estimate that GDP will be up 1.8% in the fourth quarter. So about, you know, almost twice as strong as what the Fed was thinking. Now, the problem with these projections and the economic data is 
the lag effect. And I'm not talking about the lag effect of interest rates and what's going to eventually happen. It's the lag effect of getting the actual data in. So remember, at the end of a quarter, the, there's three estimates of GDP for each quarter. So if we go back to the end of, of the third quarter, right, and we start and, and we go, okay, well, the quarter ends, and then we almost immediately get the first estimate of GDP. Now, where does that estimate come from? Because there's no data, right? The, the quarter just ended. The data hasn't really come in yet for the last month in particular of that quarter. So where does the estimate for GDP come from? Well, that estimate comes from the Fed taking a look at a poll of economists. And so they take a look at all the kind of the, what they call the blue chip analyst estimates, and they derive the first estimate from that pool of blue chip analyst estimates. So the Bureau of Economic Analysis takes a look at that pool of, of estimates and says, okay, that's the first quarter estimate. In the second quarter, or sorry, in the second month of the, of the following, uh, of that, the end of that quarter, they then have some of the data that's coming in. So now they've got data coming in that they can begin to tailor or trim that blue chip analyst estimate into an actual formal estimate. Then we do that again in the third month of that quarter. So by the end of the third month, we now supposedly have enough data in to actually calculate what the estimate for the previous quarter was. But even that is is early because we don't really have a good look at all that economic data and what's really going on. Because, again, a lot of these are surveys. How do you feel about things? Some of it is hard data, but, you know, a lot of it's kind of still early in the makings. And so a year later, we then revise that estimate again. Now, we don't pay much attention to those revisions, but... A year from now, we'll revise the quarter estimate again, and we'll find out that, oh, well, it wasn't 1.8%. It was 1.3%, whatever it was. Then three years later, we revise it all again. <laughs> so, and, and again, we don't pay much attention to these revisions, but this is why the Bureau of Economic Analysis and, more importantly, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the organization that dates recessions, why they're so late, they're always 6 to 12 months after the fact of going, oh, the recession started in Q3 of last year. But in Q3 of last year, we had 1.7%, 1.8% economic growth. Well, no, we didn't. It was actually negative growth. We just didn't know it until now. And so this is always the problem. You know, these analysts, first of all, they are biased by the fact that you know, producing positive economic reports, you know, a, a gets them exposure, B, that's what their members want to hear. And so they sell product, they sell this research. And so there's generally a bias to be positive, to be optimistic because optimism sells. So there's generally an always optimistic bias to the outlook for the economy. Now, there's some data right now that certainly suggests the economy is doing okay. And we can't, you know, unemployment's still low and those type of things. But if we take a look at a broad swath of other indicators, yield curves, leading economic indicators, uh, manufacturing reports, et cetera, all suggest the economy is much weaker than what the GDP projection currently says. So, again, while it may seem like 
to the to at least to the Fed, right? That the economy's firing on all cylinders. Unfortunately, we won't know until after the fact. And then, of course, the 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 the, the absolute fact that we have these you know interest rates that have gone up. The Federal Reserve's been hiking rates. The ten-year Treasury is up. That lag effect from those higher rates, and now add in the student loan repayments and the other things, are certainly going to weigh on economic growth. Not to mention the potential for you know government shutdowns. We talked about yesterday the the auto worker strike, all potentially adding drags to the economy. So it may seem like right now that fourth quarter economic growth is going to be one point eight percent. By the time we get there, it could be substantially less. And again, even the Fed is almost always too optimistic about their projections for economic growth. So again, I don't know. Again, I don't know personally where we're going to be. I mean, we can all take some some you know kind of pencil in about what we think you know economic growth is going to be. But you know, the problem has, that has always kind of resided is that optimism about soft landings has been a very rare event in the overall market. Just something to think about. All right. Take a break. Come back. Wrap up the show. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show so kind of an interesting uh evolution that's been going on in the markets for a, a few years now and again it's it's been hailed as a positive for investors and there's certainly a case to be made for that but you also have to ask yourself the question is it good long term for the markets and that's been ETFs exchange traded funds and and there's a push right now towards zero cost ETFs and this has been kind of an evolving thing as ETFs are being issued. And again, if, if I, if, so think about this way. Brent has a ETF company and he issues index-based ETFs. So he has an S&P 500 indexed ETF and his ETF tracks the S&P 500, okay? And he charges half a basis point for that, right? So you're going to pay a, a, a small fee to buy that ETF. That small fee, of course, is what pays for the operations of his company and the hiring of the employees, the traders, everything else that goes on, right? So he's got to make some money doing this. So if I want to issue an S&P 500 ETF, and I, I'm, I have my company, right? So I'm going to issue an S&P 500 indexed ETF. 
what's my differentiator? How is my indexed ETF going to outperform Brent's indexed ETF? Because they're exactly the same. So the only thing I have to compete on is cost. So if I want you to move your money from Brent's ETF to my ETF, I've got to charge you less. So I charge you, point, you know, point 0.4 basis points a year. And then the next guy that launches an ETF says, well, I've got to charge less. And so there's this drive lowering cost. So the question, and, and now um, State Street, which is one of the companies out there issuing ETFs, slashed the fee on its cheapest S&P 500 exchange-traded fund um, to just 0.02%. So in other words, on a $1,000 investment in their indexed ETF, you'll pay just 20 cents a year in fees. So you should buy that ETF. If you're buying an S&P 500 ETF, you should look for the lowest cost because that will boost your performance. So you have to ask yourself the question, though, okay, how do I make money, right? So I've got I've to have, have a space. I've got to have traders. I've got to have computers. I've got to ha- pay payroll. I got payroll taxes. You know, I can't issue an ETF for free. I got filing fees, legal fees. I've got SEC registration fees. I've got all these costs. So how do I make money? At 0.2%, 0.02% a year, I got to have a whole lot of assets to generate enough income to pay the bills. And I thought this was interesting because this, there's an article about this on the Wall Street Journal this morning. And let me just read to you from from it. An individual investor can now build a fully balanced portfolio using ETFs without paying more than 0.05% in total fees. Uh, This is according to Susan Thompson. Um, I think we're getting pretty close to the end. Yeah, 0.02 is pretty close to the end. If someone goes to zero, then they're doing it as a loss leader. Okay. So why would I issue... Uh, an ETF at 0.02 or even even and once you're at 0.02 you might as well go to zero and why would I issue an ETF ETF as a loss leader how how does that get me money right this is the question you need to ask yourself see free is not always free so if I'm going to issue something at zero what's the benefit well see you have to read this article very carefully because they accidentally reveal how the company is going to make money. And if I'm offering these things at lower and lower costs, and it's not just State Street, it's Invesco, it's, it's other companies as well that charge very low rates. Both State Street and Invesco um, are just kind of two of the leaders of this cut of these, of these ETFs. And then buried in the article here, and again, if you're not reading it carefully, you're going to miss it, there's this one sentence. Both State Street and Invesco are able to lower offer lower-cost versions of their most popular funds because there are professional traders that need the liquidity provided by the bigger funds to transact in large sizes. Now, what does that mean? This is called payment for order flow. 
So I've got payment for order flow. We talked about that before with Robinhood. I've also got dark pools of assets, which are out there. So if I'm a if I'm a big pension fund and I need to move, you know, a million shares of Apple, you know, whatever, I've got to have somebody to sell it to that can buy very large quantities, and there's a there's a cost for that. So it's what happens behind the scenes of that ETF is how these companies make money. So again, how do I provide a fund as a loss leader is by doing this by selling order flow somewhere else, which is a cost to you, right? You, it may not show up, you may not see it, but it costs you over time. And, you know, we've gone through, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, but again, you should, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch, ultimately at the end of the day. And, you know, this is why it's that sometimes paying for something is, is not always such a bad thing. You know, we didn't have payment for order flow and all this stuff back in the 90s when markets just operated. Yeah, we paid commissions. And if you bought or sold something, you paid a commission to buy or sell a stock. And it was open. It was transparent. Everybody knew what was going on. And now that we've been pushing more and more into this world of ETFs, it's creating other problems. And again, we've talked about the bifurcation of the market this year. The reason that the S&P is outperforming the equal weight so much is because of all the money flow that goes into Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, NVIDIA, because they're in the top 10 holdings of the S&P on a market cap weighted basis. Those absorb about 30 cents of at those 10 stocks, uh, you know, absorb about 30 cents of every dollar that's invested into the S&P 500. So when you go out and buy this fee-free S&P 500, that's fine. 30 cents of that dollar goes into those top 10 stocks. You know, valuations matter at some point. But this ETF drive that we've been doing has been distorting markets now for the last several years. It wasn't such a, you know, at the beginning of this, and this is always the problem of these new inventions of when we do things, right? In the beginning, it really, this is like, this is cool, right? What could be wrong with this? And then once it becomes Jaws and it absorbs everything in the ocean, all of a sudden people are going to realize it's a problem. Now, it's not a problem yet, right? And I don't know when it'll be a problem. But at some point, there is only so much money that can go into Apple and Google and Microsoft, et cetera. There's only so much money because valuations will ultimately matter. At some point, somebody somewhere is going to say, I can't justify paying that much money for shares of Apple. They just don't grow fast enough to justify that. And the, prob and the problem ultimately comes is that when selling starts, just as if all these passive inflows coming in drive markets higher when markets are going higher, but at some point something breaks. Don't know where. It could be 10 years from now, right? But at some point, the realization of the distortion of the markets created by ETFs is going to be a problem. And just like it fueled the rise in the markets, when people start liquidating ETFs to get out of the market, 30 cents of every dollar that comes out of an ETF comes out of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, right? 
And then as those stocks those stocks come down, that forces more selling, which forces those stocks come down even more, which forces more selling, which you see the problem. And that's how eventually you wind up with a 50% correction in the markets that nobody can think can ever happen. Um, you know, it's those one in 100 year events. But again, you know, you have this animal of ETF sitting out there and it's just this giant Hoover vacuum just sucking up assets. And again, there's nothing wrong with that right now, right? I mean, it's if I just want to track the index and there's nothing wrong with that, S&P is going up, I got to put money into my S&P 500 fund. There's nothing wrong with that. But as those costs become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, they absorb more and more and more of the assets. And again, this is the question that really nobody's asking. You know, financial advisors have given up trying to actually manage money. They just slap you into you know, a bunch of indexed ETFs and go, well, you're diversified. Hold on. You know, next 30 years, you're going to be great. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, you know, when does this distortion become a problem and what's the outcome? Of it? I don't have the answer. It just seems to be an obvious problem that's going to be out there somewhere. And unfortunately, we just typically don't recognize it until too late. And, we, and we've seen this before, right? This isn't the first time we've, we've come to this you know, event. We've had these periods in the past where there was this one kind of focused thing that everybody was in, and it always ended badly. Maybe this time will be different. I don't know. I just have a sneaking suspicion it won't be. <laughs> but that wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow with Danny Ratliff. Um, we're going to be talking um, about retirement planning and a whole, other, a whole bunch of other stuff. So again, uh, tune in tomorrow. We'll pick up with that. Get by the website today. Our latest article is out on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.